Well, this morning, as you can tell, we're beginning chapter 29, looking at verses 1 through 20. We've left Jacob, as it were, a fugitive. He's absconded from Beersheba, from the house of his father. He's on the run. We we found him, as it were, passing through the wilderness. And of course, the question of his murder is hanging over these chapters. We We go back to them. It's an unanswered question whether Esau's plot will be successful. So he's on the run. There's this this threat of murder hanging over these chapters. As the heir, he's left behind everything that he had received through his father's blessing. Everything that was familiar to him, everything that was comfortable to him, especially the mother that he had such a unique and close relationship to. And now he's obeyed his mother and his father in their charge to travel to Haran to find a wife. And that really takes up the first 20 verses of our time this morning. Last week we considered God's providence. For all intents and purposes, we could say it it was the beginning of God's awakening grace in Jacob's life. In chapter 27, he knew about God. He could say to his father, your God gave me success in the field, but here... In chapter 28 into chapter 29, Jacob has come to know God himself. Now it's the God of Isaac who has revealed himself to Jacob. And so the twister, the grasper, Jacob, who has been writhing for a blessing, will begin to learn here and into the next several chapters how to be still and know that the Lord is God. And What we see here, I think, uh, as an overview, I'm going to use C.H. McIntosh as kind of a summary. This isn't just for this morning, but really for the next month. I think this is very insightful. Jacob now begins to realize, in some measure, the bitter fruit of his conduct. While, at the same time, God is seen rising above all the weakness and folly of his servant, displaying his own sovereign grace, his profound wisdom in the way he deals with Jacob. God graciously overrules our folly and weakness. And even though we're called upon to reap the fruits of our unbelieving ways, and Jacob is reaping the fruit of his unbelieving way, God takes occasion from these things to teach our hearts deeper lessons of his own grace and wisdom. And so that's sort of the heading of where we are and where we'll go. Sin has consequences, error, taking a wrong turn, leads to consequence, and Jacob is now walking in the midst of that consequence. But it is not wasted on God's purpose in Jacob's life. In fact, this is at the very heart of God's purpose for Jacob's life. And God will use Laban to change Jacob's life. Jacob was compelled, Macintosh writes, to be in exile from his father's house in consequence of his own deceitful acting. But it's equally true that he could never have learned the meaning of Bethel, God's house, unless he had left his own home. And so here we are, traveling from Bethel to Haran as we begin Genesis 29. We're going to look at verses 1 through 20 in three parts, and then, Lord willing, we'll have enough time for three points of application. The three parts that flow out of verses 1 through 20 can be summarized thus. Jacob first seeks for Rachel. Jacob seeks for Rachel. Secondly, Jacob stays for Rachel. And third and last, Jacob serves for Rachel. Beginning in verse 1, Jacob seeking for Rachel. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. I guess in our country we're the people of the east. 
He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was over the well's mouth. Now all of the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. Please note, they moved the stone. They put the stone back. This was a multi-man effort. This was a large stone. We have an odd amount of description about the well set up here outside the border of Haran. Well, Jacob approaches, verse 4, My brethren, where are you from? He's been traveling, as we said, this 500-mile trek. They said, We're from Haran. His heart must have jumped a little. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. So let's take stock of what we've read. First, Jacob went on his journey. Now we just read that as the flow of the narrative, but it's actually a unique phrase in in Hebrew. It's literally, Jacob lifted his feet. And it's not used very often. Just said Jacob went on from there. That would be a normal way of talking. But here, Jacob lifted his feet. And it seems like the impact of this vision of God at Bethel and his resultant worship has given a little jump, a little spring in Jacob's steps. So now he's going with a very different attitude, with a very different desire than when he had left Beersheba to get to Bethel and now leaving Bethel to come to Haran. We see a new motivation in Jacob's life, and this is a result of encountering God. Now, there's a lot of work, as we've said, that God's grace needs to perform in the life of Jacob, but you can already see something of the response of Jacob's life to God's grace. He's lifting his feet now. He has momentum, purpose. He has assurance that God is with him and for him. And so when he encounters these shepherds of Haran, he already realizes, I've come close to my destination. Yes. Do you know Laban? And they do. And he asked. This would have been a customary, uh, almost a statement of respect or showing how polite you were. Is he he well? And here we have sort of a narrative setup. Literally in Hebrew, is peace with him? Is shalom with him? And that's an idiom, is he well? But it's also setting up the fact that there's not going to be peace between Jacob and Laban as we turn through the next few chapters. So yes, there's peace right now. Yes, he is well, but... You won't be well with him for long. You'll be introducing conflict into the household of Laban. And this whole encounter in terms of God's providence is parallel to Genesis 24, when the servant went to go fetch Rebekah from Haran to bring her back. And so this is our second time meeting this character that we'll get to know very well, the sort of sleazy used car salesman of a guy named Laban. No, no besmirching of used car salesmen. I don't know if that's anyone's profession here. Just, you know, it's common stock. In the providence of God, he makes it all the way to the borders of Haran, and these shepherds know this man named Laban. And if that wasn't enough providence, you'd say, well, MapQuest could get you there. God turns it up a notch. Not only do they know him, behold, look, and we're brought into the narrative, here comes his daughter Rachel now. Remember that whole mission that called you out of Beersheba by the charge of your father? Well, actually, here comes the very woman you you should marry even right now. We read of Rachel that she was a shepherdess. We've been talking about C.R. Wiley, right guys? Family economy, here you go. She's a shepherdess. Young ladies, probably not the way you'd want to meet your future husband out in the fields, covered in manure. You know, you'd want to hopefully meet at some great theological conference and you'd be all perfumed and looking well and feeling confident, but 
Didn't matter to him. Dung and all, he fell head over heels for Rachel. And this is just another signal of God's providence. And the question really as we begin this is, have we been tracking with God's providence in the lives of his people up to this point in Genesis? It's a major theme in Genesis. And that will carry us all the way to the very end when Joseph uh, uniquely reflects on the providence of God in his life. So with every patriarch, we're meant to pause and reflect about the sovereign God, El Shaddai, who controls the ways coming in and the ways going out of his people. And that's a very important lesson for us to learn. There's, there's people here that are wondering, how am I, a, a believer, and a rather unique believer at that, in this place, in our country at this time, ever going to find a spouse that has my convictions, my vision, will share my hopes and dreams, will want to follow as, as imperfectly as we may, but, but honestly and genuinely, God's will and roles for our lives. How am I going to find someone? Just, the prospects are minimal at best. And I'd say, take a look at the patriarchs. Take a look at the matriarchs. Take a look at these households. See the providence of God, which is perfect. Do you believe that God is ordering your steps in the same way? It's easy for us to read it and go, yeah, yeah, of course we know. We almost want to rebuke Jacob or Isaac or Abraham. How could you not see that? Why would you go down to Egypt? Don't you know that God is perfect in his providence? Why are you making these foolish decisions? And of course, we need to hold the mirror of God's word up to our lives. Do we recognize God's providence? How does that keep us back from making foolish decisions or walking in unwise, spiritually unhealthy ways? Do we recognize that God is ordering our steps even when all that's ahead of us is wilderness? And when we feel most alone, God may be most present to us if we see him with eyes of faith. We pick up in verse 7, moving the narrative forward. He's still talking to these shepherds. Rachel hasn't quite arrived. Look, it's high day. It's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. These are commands in, in Hebrew. Most likely they would have been seen as sort of a request or friendly advice. It would seem rather weird that this stranger comes out of nowhere and starts ordering these shepherds around. But it's good advice. It's not high day yet. Water the sheep. Go and feed them. And they said, no, 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 we can't until all the flocks are gathered together and they've rolled the stone from the well's mouth. We're back to the stone. Then we water the sheep. And while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So there's this large stone covering the mouth of the well. In the ancient world, wells or cisterns were commonly built in this way. It would have been a large opening. There probably would have been some large covering, a large stone with a, a center hole, and then an additional stone that would cover up that hole. And this is the rock that's being referred to that needs to be rolled or dragged away so that you can have access to that cistern or that well. And of course, we've already read that it was common for them, plural, these men to gather around and, and all together on the count of three heave this big stone away. And so the whole episode of this event of moving the rock from the well is recorded in detail here, in part to show us just how strong Jacob is. This is uh, too much detail to pass over. And so we're meant to see something of the strength of Jacob. And this is also setting us up for chapter 32. 
He's a strong man, even able to wrestle through the night with the angel of the Lord. And so this is sort of the Highland Games on steroids here at the well. You know, I could picture Jacob in a kilt dragging this big stone whilst, you know, Scotland the Brave blares through the pipes through the valley. He's preparing for this divine wrestling match. He doesn't even know it. And so I think there's a lesson here as well, that God often puts things in front of us that are preparations for what's coming our way. We don't even know. Trials that test us, strengthen us, prepare us. Uh, relationships, circumstances. At the time, maybe we're capable, like Jacob seems to be capable, but that's just the setup for what God's going to do in a few chapters. And it's the same for the Christian's life. Everything we've seen here is sort of sprouts of what God has done, is doing, or will be doing in Jacob's life. We see that with this repeated phrase, his mother's brother, his mother's brother, his mother's brother. That's echoing the command, you will go to the house of your mother's brother your uncle Laban. It's, it's showing that this obedience is part of the new step in Jacob's walk. And in the providence of God, verse 11, he finds Rachel. She's finally made it to see this he-man drag away the stone all by himself. And when Jacob finds her, we read, Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice, and wept aloud. Now, I don't know if that's romantic or bizarre. It may be a mix of both. You think of it from Rachel's perspective. This is just another day in the fields. She's trudging along. There's always the sheep that are getting into trouble, running up into the brambles. She's dragging them away. She's covered in mud and things worse than mud. And she comes along to the well, and here's this stranger. And all of a sudden, he finds out her name is Rachel. She doesn't realize she's been pointed to by the other shepherds. And all of a sudden, this guy out of nowhere kisses her, and, and then he starts crying out loud. So she's probably thinking, like, where is my pepper spray? i got to get out of here. Who is this lunatic? But of course, this kiss is not, not a romantic kiss. It's a customary kiss. It's the same kiss that, in a few verses, he'll give to Laban, and he doesn't start crying out loud when he kisses Laban. So what, what's this cry, then? If you've ever struggled for a long period of time wrestling out your, your faith with God. When you get to this certain point in your life, if you've come to this point in your life where it, it's a real watershed moment, you, you know it's a fork in the road and it's going to make or break you and it's, it's a terrifying reality, it's a terrifying prospect to walk by faith and not by sight, to turn away from the wide path that seems to have all of the stability and security you're looking for and crawl through this, this bendy, thorny, crooked way. And yet, Faith compels you to go in that difficult, narrow way that so few are finding, and perhaps the payoff's not there. Perhaps there's a huge laydown, and you're still walking by faith, and you're waiting, waiting to know if, if your faith will be found sure, if your faith will be rewarded, if this really was worth the sacrifices and the effort of your life. And I think that's what Jacob is realizing in this very moment. This is a more powerful moment for him, interestingly, than even the vision of God at Bethel. We don't read of him raising his voice aloud and weeping. Remember, we saw him negotiating with God. Well, if you, know, if you really want to be my God, make sure I get this, 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 and this, and I'll let you be my God. He was still twisting, still manipulating, still had a sense of control, but, but he had this new step now, and this grace was sprouting, and by the time he makes it the rest of that 500-mile journey, he's so cognizant of God's grace and providence and control, and when he has it confirmed here, it's just... 
of course he's going to weep aloud. He realizes this, this really is the God of my father. This really is my God. He really is protecting and providing. He really does have a pr- purpose for my life. He really is going to fulfill his promise. That, those weren't just empty words. That wasn't just a weird dream. And so he weeps aloud. And I love what Lewis Johnson says, anyone who's ever experienced the province of God can understand why Jacob weeps. I hope you've had moments like that in your Christian life. And if you haven't, you will. Where you just see God's graciousness to you and the way his providence unfolds and it just brings tears to your eyes. You just say, it's sometimes so hard to see it, Lord. And then moments like this come. Genesis 29, 11 comes, Lord, and I just see your perfect control. And it just takes my breath away. Well, we're also introduced to, to Laban. Laban, of course, is introduced to Jacob. Rachel rushes off. She's all excited to introduce Laban to this man who came out of the blue, kissed her, and started crying into the air. Of course, she realizes that they're cousins. And this is our second time meeting Laban. Laban, the first time, seemed very impressed by Abraham's jewelry. She's like, oh, you know, perhaps more and more. Just stay a little bit longer, stay a little bit longer. Let's go kind of rifle under the, the camels there. Let's see what we can dig out. But here, perhaps it's, it's Jacob's prowess, his strength, that Laban realizes, I could use that too. He may not have gold like his grandfather did, but boy, he could move that rock by himself. You know, he'd be great around the farm. And that seems to be where Laban goes. And so we read, beginning in verse 12, Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father, and it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him, embraced him, kissed him, brought him to his house. So he told Laban all of these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, echoes of Adam, uh, extolling his wife. And he stayed with him for a month. And we're going to have to start paying attention to these time cues. So here we have this time cue for a month. And then after this month, Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? So here's Laban, and he responds like Adam to Eve. You really are my flesh and my blood, and like Eve, you're going to become my helpmeet. (laughs) You're going to help me in all that I'm trying to do around my household. And so name your price. He refers to Jacob as his flesh in his bone, but he doesn't really treat him that way, as we'll come to see. He treats him like an enemy in many respects as the chapters roll on. But of course, this is also signaling the fact that God had guided Jacob to the completion of his parents' charge. He's now at the household of Laban, and he has the prospect of marrying Rachel. So as we'll see in the coming weeks, as I mentioned, Laban is going to change Jacob's life forever. And God loves to use Labans in the lives of his people. (laughs) Most Christians that I've gotten to know, if they've been Christians for any length of time, they've had something that could be named or labeled a Laban. And so we'll spend some time considering that in the weeks to come. Up until this point, Jacob has been living by his own wits, his own sense of control, his ability to manipulate any situation, to come out ahead or to gain the advantage. And the Lord now is going to teach him how to be patient and to wait on the Lord to perform all that he has promised. It's not going to be through twisting and self-reliance. It's going to be on the Lord's timing. 
And this is the beginning, therefore, of hard lessons in Jacob's life. We might have thought he already had some pretty hard things to endure, but it's going to get a lot harder for him. And this is instructive for us. It's in these very regions, not only here at Haran, but as he continues to travel and even makes his way back to Bethel and Beersheba, it's these very places that the Israelites are also troubled and tested by the Lord. And they repeat, in many ways, their father, Israel, Jacob's legacy. And of course, as believers, we're meant to understand the way that God uses his providence to bring about the trials that shape us into Christ-like people. And there's this echo of God's voice in the background of all of this. Remember, Jacob, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And that has to be resonating throughout Jacob's mind as he patiently endures injustice, deceit, as as he gets treated the way that he had treated others, a sort of anti-golden rule experience. And in the back of all of that adversity, opposition, hostility, injustice, he has to hear the whispers of that divine promise, I'm with you, Jacob. You can trust in me. I'm a refuge for you. And so it is with God's people. We need to hear resonating in our lives in these difficult times, in these difficult trials, God's promise, lo, I am with you always. He's our refuge, our shield. And this also would propel Jacob not only to endure, but to work rather hard. (laughs) And I think we actually get a little piece of this as we head to the last four verses. Beginning in verse 16, Jacob serves for Rachel. So, He seeks and he finds. He stays for a month, and now we're heading towards the first seven-year period, and he's going to serve for Rachel. Verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate. We'll talk about that. But Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. And so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So first, we're introduced to Leah. And this will be significant as we head in the chapters to follow. And of course, we want to understand what it means that Leah's eyes were delicate. A a gloss could be Leah's eyes were um, weak, dull even. Some have just assumed this is a sort of Hebrew idiom for she didn't have an impressive appearance. She was rather dull on the eyes, rather, you know, weak to the eyes, and delicate's a nice way of saying that. It's not a whole lot of evidence that that was an idiom. We at least don't have it anywhere else. Some would just say, well, she doesn't have the sparkle in her eyes. And to an ancient Middle Easterner, the eyes were, you know, these, these, what what does the Song of Solomon say? Fish pools of Heshbon? Apparently that's a compliment to a woman back then. Your eyes are like fish pools of Heshbon to me. Oh, you're so romantic. So she has these dull, weak eyes. Ugh, not very, not very impressive, not very attractive, unlike her sister, who's got these sparkling, big, anime-like eyes, right? Well, that doesn't really make sense either. There's clearly an idiom here. What the idiom means is hard to say. We're probably closest to say she wasn't impressive or attractive, whether physically or maybe even just in terms of her, her character, her manner that her sister was sort of fiery, <laughs> and, and her appearance had a sort of command. And she, of course, is emphasized as being very physically beautiful. But the contrast is perhaps her character. She's very delicate, you know, insulated. That might be closer. I'm trying to help out our 
good friend Leah here, <laughs> not just to jump and assume after 2,000 years of interpretation that she's the ugly sister, the proverbial ugly sister. Let's give her a break. And this is actually important theologically. We're going to see the way that God actually causes that gorgeous sister to experience barrenness and makes the sister that wasn't even originally sought delighted in. She becomes beautiful in Jacob's eyes as she bears children for her husband. And so as we're working through the Genesis narrative, we need to pay close attention not only to the primary characters, the patriarchs, this is a patriarchal heritage, a patriarchal narrative. Not only are we paying attention to that, but we're looking at how much God is concerned about the Hagars and the Rebekahs and these very prominent women within the accounts. And Leah and Rachel are going to be good examples of that. So Jacob negotiates. I love Rachel. He has clearly no interest in Leah. I love Rachel, and I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter. Uh, Hughes points out, R. Kendall Hughes, he says, uh, we have text types from this period, newsy text types, of, of typical bride prices. And apparently, if this is a parallel, a typical bride price would be about four years' worth of the average shepherd's labor. Now, he's going to be working as a shepherd, right? He's going to be managing the cattle and the flock. So you figure, if he was saying, I'll work seven years, he's almost saying, I'm going to give you practically double the dowry. I'm going to go almost double. I'm going well beyond what a standard bride price would be. And that shows not only his heart for Rachel, as we'll see, but it also shows a very different character for Jacob. What happened to the twister and the deceiver who manipulates everything to gain an advantage? What's the easiest way to get the most and cost the least? Now, notice he's doubling up. He's actually starting out the negotiation in the worst way possible. It's like going to the yard sale and it's like, you know, I'll give you a hundred bucks for that. And the guy's like, sold, sold, you know? It's like, why did you start out so high? You could have whittled this all the way down to maybe two years tops. So we see a character shift in Jacob. He wants to work hard. Now he's assured that God is with him and for him. He knows that if he works to serve the Lord, the Lord will prosper him. And so he has no problem saying, what's fair? And I'm even going to go beyond that. That is an evidence of grace in Jacob's life. Verse 20, last verse of our passage, and we'll move to application. Jacob served seven years for Rachel, And they seemed like only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. It's a a beautiful state. Who said the Bible isn't romantic? It seemed like a few days to him. And it seemed like a few days to him because he was working for love. He had this love for Rachel that consumed him. And it called him to rise early. And it brought him home late from the fields. He worked hard and he worked long days, but they might as well have been minutes. He had such a burning love for Rachel. If you've ever been in love, you know something of what Jacob felt. Time flies (laughs) when you're with the object of your love. But I think spiritually there's something very important here for us to understand. And the, the three applications are related to this idea of how our love affects our work. And so the three points are simply this. First, working from love. Second, working for love. And third, working through love. So working from love, 
for love, through love. Those are the points. The first is working from love. As Christians, of course, we don't, we don't just pursue a love yet to be realized. That's kind of the second point. But we actually begin working because of a love we've already received. We, we don't just work for a love yet to be realized. We work from a love we've already received. And this is a very important theological point. This is the starting point. That Christians begin to operate the Christian life as a response to the love of God poured out upon them. This is the starting point, and if we fail here, we'll fare almost everywhere else. A failure to understand the love of God that is brought through Christ into our lives goes a long way in explaining so many of our own faults and failures as Christians. It's simply a misunderstanding, a marginalization, uh, a selfish misconstrual of the way that God has loved or perhaps there's some disconnect where we, we think somehow that we're loved of God and we love God, but we never make it out of that first tablet into the second tablet. And so we think we can have love of God, and yet it never translates into a, into a love of neighbor. And all of these failures, again, flow out of not working from love, having a proper understanding of God's love. Jai Packer says in the classic, Knowing God, There is a tremendous relief in knowing God's love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst things about me. No discovery can disillusion God about me and the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. And none of that can quench his determination to bless me. This is exactly what Jacob is experiencing. God knows everything that I am and everything that I've done, and he's come and poured out blessing on my life. And as a response to that kind of love, Jacob learns how to love a guy like Laban and work really hard and give, give a double effort, as it were, seven years instead of three or four. We think of the Apostle Paul and how he is, is perhaps the best New Testament example of someone working from love received by God through Christ. He delights in the truth. He, he wants Christians to delight in the truth. He, he always sets the sort of horizon of theology before he ever calls them to put away or put on or act or move. He always says, consider how God chose you before the foundation of the world. He chose you so that you would be holy and blameless in him. You know, this is the hurt. Before we get to the things you need to do, Ephesians, just take a step back and look at the love of God. He roots the intentions and the actions of God the Father toward us. He says, God who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Ephesians 2.4 Have this horizon, God's great love, this love that you've received. Before you ever get to the, and therefore go, therefore do, therefore put off. Paul prays supremely for the saints to know the love of Christ. It passes all knowledge. It's an electing love, it's a directing love, a providential love, an assuring love. It embraces those who are unholy, those who are wayward, rogue. It's a love that is demonstrated for all of us upon the cross. He makes us accepted in the beloved. We didn't even want to be. He makes us accepted in the beloved. Makes us willing in the day of his power. He seats us in the heavenly places. Spiritually, we're with the host on high, as it were. 
dwelling in this relationship of perfect love between God and His people. And then Paul asks the question, as he does not just in Romans 8, but everywhere, who, who, who can plumb the depths of this love? Who can understand it? Who can fathom it? Who can sound it out? This is a love that crosses the, the great gulf of sin. It's an unsearchable love. For me, I, perhaps you're like this, especially coming into sort of Reformed theology. If you meet someone off the street, and, and maybe they're a Christian, most, you know, most likely they're not. And they just say, oh, you know, I just believe that God is love. You know, or just like, you know, I love just thinking about the love of God. You kind of just, you know, you're like, oh, okay, you know, there's more, you know, there's a lot more than that, you know. You kind of roll your eyes, and it just doesn't seem, they take something that is profound, and it just seems to be so fickle and cheap, and it loses all of its substance and value. You meet someone who becomes a Christian, and their, their life is still sort of a train wreck. They're at the Genesis 28 part of their Christian life. And they're just like, I've just been, all I can think about is God's love, God's love, God's love, God's love. And you're like, hey, that's awesome, you know, but, you know, Laban's are coming, you know, things are going to get tough, and there's going to be a lot more that God's going to show you. He's, he's, he's got a lot more attributes than just love. So as much as I can struggle against that, I've realized over the years how much I gravitate toward theologians or ministers that have labored for decades and have been diligent students of the Word and they've had many different seasons and experiences that have brought them into deeper encounters of God and, and, and have insight into His Word as it's shed abroad in their lives. And, and when those people can say to me, you know, I've just been reflecting on the love of God lately. That's like, yeah, okay. This is not some entry-level foothill. This is sort of the summit. We should, be, we should be very slow and careful as we approach it, lest we dare cheapen it, make it something fickle and, and easy. I was just, for, for, uh, uh, for a reason, I was thinking of this book just yesterday called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. It's a difficult doctrine. It's not easy. It's unsearchable. It's incomprehensible if we're understanding it rightly. A verse that people would have on their refrigerators and maybe not ever think twice about, God is love. And that is perhaps one of the most incredibly mysterious, significant verses in all of Scripture. So when we say, you know, we work from love, it can't be this fickle, cheap trinket of theology. It has to be something so vast, so weighty. We're, we're almost intimidated to even approach it. But once we're in it, there's, where can you go? It's an ocean without borders, without limits. To be gripped by the love of God in Christ is, is Paul's whole foundation for all that he does. Everything that Paul was called to do has at its root, at its core, this love of God in Christ. And he prays that Christians would know it. They would experience it. They would abound in it. They would practice it. He presses forward and in love to know more and more of that love. He works from love. And when we work from that love, as we said, the, the test is that, that that love that draws us close through that first tablet toward the God who is not to be worshipped as His creation, not to be worshipped with the idols, whose name is not to be taken in vain, this God is then brought into the neighbor. So our love for God is now reflected, it's manifest unto our neighbor. And that's how we can know that we've actually pressed into the love of God in Christ for us. 
Do we lack love? Do we possess something of it? I think I've shared this before some years ago. I, whenever I hear it, it's, it's, it's part of a CD that I have, and it's just a diary entry from Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish minister. And I, I mean, I just cry like a baby every time I hear it. <laughs> and it's just a diary entry as he's walking around the, the slums of, of Edinburgh. And he says, uh, accompanied by A.B. Uh, in one of his rounds through some of the most miserable habitations I ever beheld. Such scenes I never dreamed of before. Oh, why am I such a stranger to the poor in my native town? I've passed their doors thousands of times. I have admired the huge black piles of buildings with their lofty chimneys breaking the sun's rays. Why have I never ventured within? And then he asked this sort of soul-piercing question to himself. How dwelleth the love of God in me? No man careth for our souls is written over every forehead. Awake, my soul. Why should I give hours and days any longer to a vain world when there's such misery at my very door? Lord, put thine own strength in me. Forgive my past long life of uselessness and folly. He was 29 when he died. And yet his pursuit of the love of God for him in Christ flooded his, his life with such love for his neighbor that he could look at his young life and say, it's been a foolish, largely wasted life because I've lacked love. How dwelleth the love of God in me is a question every Christian needs to ask themselves. Can I say that I've understood who God is and what he's done if I lack love? Or is love the one unmistakable proof that we've encountered God through Christ. God has loved us. Christ has died for us. The Holy Spirit indwells us. The God who is love indwells our lives. How dwelleth the love of God, therefore, in us? It would be impossible for us to have great love for Christ if that does not correspond to a greater love for our neighbor. So how can we do any of this unless we're working from love? The answer is not the worldly strategy, the worldly wisdom of let's just buck up, grab a pail, you know, join the effort, donate the $25 through PayPal, and just you know, join the effort here of helping our fellow man, which is usually an exercise in feeling better about themselves. They assuage their own guilt, convince themselves they're a good person because they're, they're starting not from a place of love they received, but trying to muster up some love to give, and it's often self-love. That doesn't mean the work's not honorable or noble. In many ways, Christians have something to learn about that. But ideally, Christians work from the love they've received. We're not able to truly love God and from our love of God, love our fellow man, unless we begin at the love we've received in Christ. When we're actually meditating and reflecting upon how God has loved us and, and the specificities of the ways that he has loved us. If we're not taking the time to do that, step outside of ourselves and get a big picture of his providence and his patience, his long-suffering mercy toward you, you will not be brought into a reflection of the love of God that you will be able to reflect toward others. And if there's anything that is unbecoming of a Christian, it is a lack of love. And we live, frankly, in, in cultural currents right now where there's a lot of Christians who ought to know better. They ought to know better. 
It's too easy in our reformed pugilistic world where everyone wants to make a name for themselves. Everyone has a chip on their shoulder to show the most unchristlike lack of love. And it cannot be so among us. So we work from love. And that, that might irritate you. That might be some friction. I've been there. I've been a cage stage Calvinist. I get it. I work from love, you know. We need fire. We need beards. We need war fields. <laughs> I get it. But I'm telling you, you're just, at the you're just at the foothills of it. You're at the puddles. You haven't even begun to understand just how lofty, just how high God's love is, the difficult doctrine of God's love. So we work from love. Second point, we work for love. Here we're getting a little bit closer to Jacob. Right? This is Jacob working for love. And because he's working for love, that love is making his work seem light. It's seven years, but it seems like days. He's happy to do it. More shovels, more hay to haul, you know, more animals to feed. He's got a smile. He's humming, you know, zippy doo doo. This is not Jacob singing the, you know, the Negro spirituals back, you know, in the days of, of the slave trade. You know, this is not him suffering. He's actually delighted to work. That's the difference that working for love makes. The fact that we have received God's love is not just. Uh, something we have in the past, it's also a future prospect. We, we've received God's love in Christ, that's certainly true, we work from that, but there's another sense in which it's not yet fully realized, so we're working for it also. We're working for it to be fully manifest on that great day. We love Him and, and want to hear Him say, well done, good and faithful servant. You worked longer than seven years and you worked for your love, and if you worked for your love, it will seem like days. You'll be like Paul in Philippians 1, saying, I don't even know if I'm ready to depart. <laughs> Isn't there more I can do for you, Lord? I love you so much. It's far better to be with you. It's far better to be with you. I want to be with you, but I know there's work to do. And so I, I don't know what to do. I'm torn. I want to be with him, but I love him so much, I want to fulfill the work he's called me to here. That, that made Paul's ministry, the shipwrecks, the floggings, the beatings, the gossip, the slander, the churches that he planted, then rejecting him, that, that made all of that labor seem like a gift even unworthy to reference. You don't get a victim mentality in Paul, do you? These, these things are not even counted to be worthy. The closest you get to, it was but a few days, is, is Paul saying, you know, these, these, these temporary tribulations these sort of passing winds. It's, in light of eternity, it's just a, it's a blip. Paul doesn't say, if I have a little more time, I can do better. I really want to earn my way. You know, there's so much I need to do. I'm really worried. Am I going to have to shave off some time in purgatory? Is that a thing? No, what does he say? For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I live on the flesh, it means fruit from my labor. What I should choose, I cannot say. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, be with Christ. Paul is not earning anything. It's the farthest thing from his mind. It's, it's working from love for the sake of love. Paul will, willingly, 1 Corinthians 9, denies himself what the other apostles take as privileges. Do I not have a right, he says? Can I not marry like Peter? Can't you, you support me while I'm here instead of me having to raise my own support? Do I not have these rights as an apostle? But I gladly deny them. 
you see, I've been called as an apostle and God's given me all these gifts. And on top of these gifts and blessings, He's given me rights. He's given me not just privileges, but rights. This is a right. But because everything in my life has been given to me, Paul says, everything, my ministry, when I went from being the, the chief persecutor of the Christians to now the chief apostle in some ways, when I went from being the public enemy number one of the church and I consented when they were being executed and I dragged families apart and I dragged men and women, mothers and fathers into prisons. And then he, he conquered me with irresistible grace and he made me his and he loved me and he gave himself for me. And everything I have, every gift, every insight, every opportunity, every providentially directed step of my path is from him. And I have nothing that I can give him to show my love for him. And so the most I can do is take something that's rightfully mine and deny it. I want to have something I can give. So I don't take up my rights. I lay them down. What do the other apostles do? Well, that will be a token of my love. I won't do what they do, lest what I offer to Christ be held against me, he says. This is all not just the love that Paul has received, but he's working for love. It's this response to God's grace, but he, he longs to serve Christ. So there's this love for Christ that drives Paul. He's working for love. I love what Rutherford says, and if you ever need some help reflecting on the love of Christ, you should read his letters that have been collected into a devotional called The Loveliness of Christ by Samuel Rutherford. And he says, he's sort of comparing our experience in heaven with the bride's delight on her wedding day. What delights her the most? It's not the service, not the guests, not the reception, not the flowers, not the dress. It's her bridegroom's face. Her dear bridegroom's face. The bride, he says, takes not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she does in her bridegroom. So we in this life to come shall not be so much accepted with the glory that goes about us as with our bridegroom's joyful face and presence. C.S. Lewis talks about people who have a desire to go to heaven and it, it, would, be, it would be the worst thing for them because heaven is Christ, unmitigated. And they have no desire for Christ. They just have a desire for some pleasant afterlife. If you don't love Christ, if you're not wanting to work for the love of Christ, as I think Rutherford says, heaven would be a hell to you. Heaven would be a hell to you. And this I pray, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more in more knowledge, in more discernment, more, more, more love, Paul is saying. Be filled with the fruits of righteousness which come by Christ. Love will never abound in the Christian's life if, if they're dwelling or communing or, or walking apart from Christ. If our love is not growing in correspondence with Christ, what we've received from Him, who He is, usually the first step, right, is just what He's done. Oh, I know I'm forgiven. I'm amazed that He's forgiven me. But then as you mature in the Christian life, you're not so delighted by what's taken place for you as much as you're delighted in just who He is. And I can usually tell the difference between Christians who are just starting their journey and those who have been there for a long time. The ones that are just starting talk a lot about their lives and their past and what God's helping them with and where they're still struggling and all that He's done. I'm so thankful for the cross. And amen, amen. 
And those that are matured are just, they just want to sit around and talk about Christ. <laughs> Been meditating on him. You know, his patience, his beauty, his glory. It's a mark of maturity in a Christian that our love for Christ enhances everything else in our lives. It enhances all of our relationships. It enhances our efforts. We want to work because we love him. We want to work hard at what he prioritizes because he prioritizes it. We want to give, like Paul, some token of our love to him, even when we're just denying a right or a privilege. And this I pray, that your love may abound more and more. So you take that hard work of sanctification, you take those thorns of a trial, you take the weariness of your marathon, the fatigue of your battle against sin, you take all of that and you compare it to the love of Christ. And like Paul, you'll say, it's not even worthy to be compared. It's not even worth mentioning. I won't even bring it up. And in this way, the love of God constrains us. You say, I'm poor, but you're serving Christ and you're working for love. I'm weak, but you're serving Christ and you're working for love. And I'm discouraged, I'm depressed, but you're still serving Christ and you can work for his love. I'm backslidden, but you can return and you can serve Christ and you can work for his love. And when you ask those questions, how can I carry on this way? <laughs> you hear echoing, just like Jacob heard the promise echo. Maybe this time it's Paul's words. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. You abound in that love. You feel it. You dwell on it. You, you make it your mindset. You turn it over in your mind. Throughout the day, you make it your prayer. I want to eat, like Tony said, of the Word. I want to eat, Lord, not just of some little insight. Just, I don't want to have a little nugget to take away. Some in, oh, did anyone else notice this? I don't want to read the Bible primarily as a fact book. I don't want to read it as some moral map to have a successful life. This is not a life coaching manual. I want to read it as one who's reading a love letter, a divine love letter the lover of my soul. I was, I was talking with Caleb just yesterday morning about this. It's kind of talk about someone who's meditating on the person of Jesus. Well, you've heard my appreciation for uh, retired pastor David Green. One of the last series he ever preached through at his church up in the North Shore, a small, small church, was on the Song of Songs. And he, at one point, just brought up, this was just in a casual conversation. He, we, we went out for coffee one day. And he said, you know, I've been thinking about the, the order of the books in the Old Testament. You know, Song, Song of Songs, it's very difficult to understand everything that's going on there. It's, it's sort of erotic poetry, and, and then there's a theological depth to that, and it's part of our inspired words. There's a lot of, no wonder it's the last thing he preached to his church. It's like, you know, I'd take Revelation over Song of Songs, maybe. <laughs> but... He said, I've been thinking about the ordering of these Old Testament books. You know, we, we have a certain order that's come down to us, but it's not the way that, you know, the Hebrews would have had the order of those same books. You, you hear Jesus or the apostles reference the law or the law prophets in the writings. And that was kind of how they had their canon ordered. You had the law. If They didn't mean the whole 
Hebrew Bible by that, the law, as sometimes it's used, and they meant the first five books, the Pentateuch. And then you had the prophets, and that meant all of the prophets, major and minor. And then also you had the writings, and these would be the wisdom writings. So your Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the last book in that law, prophets, and writings order would be Song of Songs. And when you realize that the average Israelite for 400 years between the last prophetic ministry in the time of silence and all of this birthing expectation for a Messiah to come and deliver the people according to the prophet's promises, you realize they're carrying in their Bibles the last word they were reading was this love letter. It was this poem between a husband-to-be and his wife, the, the betrothed, and they're speaking to each other. And then you end that long centuries of silence awaiting the Messiah. You, you end with, take great leaps across the mountain, my beloved. How much longer? When will you come? When will you come? And so they're reading as the last word in their Bible, the great, the great love of this bridegroom for his bride. And hopefully there were Israelites by faith understanding that bridegroom is our Messiah. When will he come? When will you come? We're heartsick for love. We're going to die if you don't come. And then you read Matthew <laughs> and Mark and Luke and John, and he's come. The bridegroom has come. I hope you don't ever fish for a verse of the day as sort of a vitamin. When you read the scriptures, you're, you're reading it devotionally as a letter to you from the lover of your soul to equip you to understand more of who he is and what he's done so that your love might abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. This is what Paul desires. And so you don't just work from love, you work for love. And when you're thinking in these ways and living in these ways, however the work is that God calls you to, it will seem like a few days. And like Paul, you'll say, I don't know... I want to depart, but I want to finish the work he's called me to. Last point, and we'll be brief. Not just working from love or working for love, but working through love. So if working from love is all that's behind us as Christians, and working for love is all that's beyond us as Christians, then working through love is our present. Our present, we're called as Christians to work through love. And perhaps the two central words if we were to reduce Christianity down to two words, I don't know what two words you'd write. I think I could make a good argument that the two central words for the Christian's life ought to be faith and love. Faith and love. Faith and love together determine the truth of one's Christianity. Not faith apart from love and not love apart from faith. But faith and love working together. Faith as we have it, faith working through love. And there's a lot of people that can too easily read past James, which is more of a prophetic denouncement than a letter. I mean, he says, it's just so easy to say you have faith. It's just so easy. But it doesn't count. It's faith working through love. It's faith working through love. We need to have God's love as our beginning and our end. We need to work from God's love as the past, as what we've received, for God's love as what's ahead of us. But if we have those things in place, we will be working our faith out through love.
And so my thesis is, if we're not presently working our faith out through love, coming to a deeper, more knowledgeable, more discerning understanding of what that is and what that looks like, then we're either not working from or working for love. Because when those things are in place, you will be working your faith through love. If we don't have it behind us and we don't have it beyond us, we will not have it along the way. And we're tragically self-deceived. Unbelief is seated in the heart. Jesus, I mean, this is everywhere in Scripture, right? We, we want to attribute unbelief to the head, to the intellect, to the reason of fallen man. We, we look at someone like Dawkins, and we want to say it's, it's the intellect. That's the problem. No, it's the heart. It's the heart. That's the issue. It's always the issue. From the heart flow all the issues of life. Your affections, therefore, show your faith. Your, your affection, your, your love will show your, your faith. Do you believe in Jesus? Of course. Even demons believe in Jesus. Does your faith work through love? That's what James would like to know. When Peter denies Jesus, you remember, of course, that the scene, the one who had said, I'm going to die with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm hacking ears off, right? Like, I'm, I'm your ride or die, Jesus. <laughs> you know? I'm... There's no way they're taking you over my dead body. And you have this loyal, almost pit bull-like support of Peter. And then it shows so often, so often in life, isn't it true, when you get that bravado and that, that confidence and that assertion, the real manly man, there's often that's just a hard porcelain surface and there's a coward behind that. And that's what Peter is. He's actually a coward. He, he's prepared to strike off ears, but then he's by a fire and there's just this little teenager and she's going, weren't you with them? And he's like, no, and he's shaking and rattled. But when Jesus is resurrected, of course, having predicted Peter's denial, and of course, Peter's still, there's this tension, right? A tension with the risen Lord. He's thrilled, dies to go see him, and one of the first to see him. And yet there's this tension. And Jesus addresses that tension when he restores them. And the thing that strikes me is he doesn't say, Peter, have you followed what I've taught you? That's not how Jesus restores Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, do you remember the creeds that we memorized together? All right, let's go through it together. <laughs> he doesn't say, Peter, don't you remember the teachings? How is your family worship? What's your devotional life like? Let's make a checklist together and we'll just meet and I'll be your accountability. Now, how does Jesus restore Peter? He just sits him down and he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? And he's offended. In the Greek, something interesting is going on there. Jesus is asking the question with sort of the Christian word for love, right? Agape. Agape, man. Do, do you love me? And when Peter responds, he doesn't say the same word back. He doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, agapao you. No, he says, you know that I'm your friend. It's almost like the guilt or the shame of that 
denial. It's just too much for him to claim it. Maybe he's protecting himself from some rebuke. Well, if you loved me, how, how could you deny me? Right? And so the most he'll do is say, you know, I'm, I'm your friend. And so Jesus presses on. No, no, that's not what I asked. Do you love me? Lord, you know that I'm your friend. No, do you love me? And so that's the question for us, brothers and sisters. Do we love him? Do we love him? Are we going to work from love? For love? More and more, abounding in it? And is having those things in place, is that love going to work out in our lives? Faith working itself through love so that we can say confidently, with a sure throat and a, and a proud chest, Lord, you know that I love you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, for your love for us, Lord. So easy to say, so impossible to comprehend. And yet we pray it would grip us, take hold of us, that your love for us would manifest in our lives as love for you supremely, and from that, love for our fellow man. We know the first and greatest commandment, but we also know the second is like it. Forgive us for not heeding the rebuke of James, for not staring into the eyes of our Savior when he asks us pointedly whether or not we love him. And show to each one of us today whether we can truly say, we love you. Like Paul, be so confident to say, it's gain to die. It's far better to be with you, such is our great love for you. But if anything, our love for you compels our work as Jacob was compelled to work. May that be part of our evidence, the way that we persevere in trials. That those trials, though they may be weeks, months, years, would seem like days because of your love for us and because of our love for you. Lord, as the Labans come along, and as all the unknowns begin to press us with fears and anxieties, let us hear the echo of your promise and the promise of your great love for us in Christ, which is sure and everlasting. And I pray if there's a stranger to your love here this morning, that they would encounter it in, in ways that would shake the dust off of our cold affections for you. And these things we ask in your son's name. Amen.